And I said to her, Grandma, you know, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Hi, I'm Julie Hyde, and I'm passionate about inspiring leaders to step up and lead and be powerful role models for those around them. My guests are all doing just that, and I ask them to share how they are making it count and how they have created their success. I can't wait to share their amazing stories with you. Holly Ransom is a globally renowned content curator, powerful speaker, a master questioner with the belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Holly doesn't need a whole lot of introducing and I'm going to leave it to you to read her bio. She's absolutely extraordinary in terms of what she has achieved. Holly is someone who has inspired me for a really long time. What I love about Holly is that she challenges your mindset. She really encourages you to dig deep, to think big and question what we're doing and why we're doing it to be really strong leaders not only leaders of team, but leaders of self. I loved this chat with Holly and I was absolutely delighted when I reached out and she said that she would be a guest on my podcast. And I really hope that you enjoy this chat with her as well. And I hope that you leave inspired to create the change that you want to see in the world. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Julie. I'm pumped to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm a huge fan of your work and it's such an honor to chat to you today. And as I said, I've got so much to ask you and I know we won't get through it all. So let's jump into it. Let's do it. All right. So we're going to get into chatting about your amazing book, um, Leading on the Edge, soon. But first, I'd love to tap into a little bit of the holly behind the brand. Who is Holly? What makes you you and what has helped you to achieve the heights that you have? Well, gosh, well, thank you for the the compliment that's implied in that question to begin with. And and there's so many different ways I think I could take that one. Um, I I think probably it's hard to understand me without understanding the influence that my grandmother has had on my journey to date and just how powerful a role model she's been in sort of setting my, my values and uh, you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk later on about kind of a formative experience I had with her when I was younger and, and sort of the way that shaped me. When I think about things aside from kind of um, purpose and passion, which we'll delve into no doubt in more depth, I think probably uh, when I think about the things that make me, uh, me definitely um, an, a, a pragmatic optimism for the world around me. I think I am, uh, I get up with the view that it is absolutely within our grasp to make tomorrow better. And that there's a responsibility incumbent on each and every one of us to play a role in that. I think there's a, a personal hunger. My grandma often jokes, um, we were joking about it again last night, actually, that I was born in perpetual motion. So there's something I think about the intensity that I like to live life with and this idea that I'm, I'm sort of um, very conscious of the fact we only get a certain number of rotations around the sun and I want to make the ones that I've got count. So there's definitely something in that. And then I think when it comes to just what I enjoy uh, very much away from work, uh, definitely sport in all its forms, love exercise, love um, love AFL, love practically any sport I can get my hands on, uh, love, uh, well, I'm terrible at all things singing and dancing related, but enjoy doing them. I like to think I make up for it with the amount of enthusiasm that I commit to both with. So that's encouraging, if nothing else, um, and uh, a pretty voracious 
reader. I think curiosity is probably the the strongest personal trait I've I've got. So love consuming and learning, whether that's in conversations like the one we're sharing now, uh, whether that's you know from from written material from the the multitude of podcasts out there and amazing sources that are at our fingertips nowadays. But that's probably a little bit of what makes me me, I guess. So what is the type of music you love dancing to? Oh and is that behind closed doors? <laughs> yeah, my, my partner jokes I'm a jukebox. Um, so I think it's probably more singing actually. And I have this uh, silly ability to pick up any word and try and riff it into a song lyric that that word's either in or similar to. So it goes all over the place. I've been applauded, uh, well, applauded in, in air quotes for my eclectic song choice at least. So I think I span every genre and every every generation but no probably just more upbeat kind of pop stuff tragically nothing cool don't worry <laughs> oh I love it I'm on the same page with you there <laughs> so that curiosity that you spoke about is that something that you think you've just had innately within you is that something that has been curated by the people around you is it something that has been instilled in you from your role models yeah look it's a great question and um I know you're in the process of reading the leading edge at the moment and one of the things I actually explore in the book is the idea that we're actually all born with that innate curiosity like go and meet a two-year-old three-year-old four-year-old five-year-old and you will be peppered by an extraordinary volume of questions every day so I actually think that is one of the traits each and every one of us is born with the sad thing is we know most of the time it gets kind of uh normalized by society away you know we get we get encouraged in schools to be right and perfect and that stops us being prepared to ask questions or not know things or whatever it might be and by the time we get to our late teenage years we're often in single digits of the number of questions we ask in any given day whereas we talk to four-year-old girls in particular it's in the several hundreds of questions a day they're sort of the peak question asking demographic so I think the more important question is for those of us who can reflect and say, maybe I don't ask as many questions as uh, a, a four-year-old and a five-year-old uh, do, what is it that stopped you? Um, what was it in your environment around you? What was it in your formative experiences that maybe told you that, you know, uh, and I think there is a whole generation of leaders. And one of the themes of the book is the, this idea that we're resetting what leadership looks like. And I think one of the big mental resets is this idea that for a long time in the industrial age, I think leadership success equated to at least giving the appearance that you had all the answers, but certainly this idea that time and service or accumulated expertise equaled rank. And so it was problematic to ask questions because you were expected to know everything. Now I think we're in a really different period of time where I truly believe that the, one of the most important things in every leader's toolkit is the ability to ask questions and the ability to ask better questions. And, and that's a big reset for a lot of people who were brought up and, and um, kind of indoctrinated, I guess, in the, the old way of leadership thinking. It's pretty uncomfortable to go to a place of saying, that's interesting. I don't know about that. Tell me a little bit more um, or help me understand that. That's new. That's different. Um, why might that be the case? So I think coming with that inquisitive mindset, it, it's a muscle that each and every one of us need to re-engage. And it's a discipline for that matter too. You know, going into a conversation and checking in with yourself before you do it and say, I'm really mindful of asking a question in this meeting. I'm going to be mindful of asking several questions over the course of this meeting. At the end of that meeting, I'm going to reflect on what I learned from the questions that I asked. And I'm going to reflect on, was there a better question that I could have asked? Or was there something different I should have asked about? 
And that idea of actually building that curiosity muscle, I think, is arguably one of the most important habits we can all get to the the leadership gym and start working on. Yes, I love that. It's like setting that intent to be curious before you go into something. And of course, that leads me to thinking, you know, obviously, we need the space and the time to think about that from a mindset point of view, because, you know, the world is just busy, ask anyone and they'll tell you. And, and it is true, you know, we're juggling a gazillion balls up in the air and we're pulled from pillar to post, particularly, you know, um, as leaders and reacting to so much that often we're just not thinking about what we're doing. So it's really coming back to that conscious and intentional style of leadership, isn't it? And really understanding what's going to work for you. Well, I know one of your big bugbears is the word busy itself. And I share that bugbear with you because, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not arguing and I know you're not either, that that every stat and data point tells us we have never been busier. I mean, absolutely, that that's there, that's true. I guess my my next uh, evolution of that pattern of thinking, though, is, well, that's not going to change anytime soon. So the reality is this is the new operating environment. Um, in part, I often think when you ask someone how they are and they say busy, I was like, when did we stop reflecting on how we actually are emotionally and start answering about the state of our diary or our schedule instead. But the second thing for me is, okay, well, that's our new world order. So when we're talking about these capabilities and and traits and characteristics we want to be building, I mean, one of the challenges that's incumbent on each of us is how do we set intent? Because nothing's going to happen without intent. How do we build structure that actually works for the busyness and the pace and the ever-changing nature of 2021? Because if it's not built for that, it's going to last 2.5 seconds. And it's not going to deliver us too much value. And then how do we maintain some degree of, of self-reflection and that notion of continuous improvement? Because it's that idea of constant iteration that we can borrow from the entrepreneurs and the idea of minimum viable products. Let's try an idea, test it for a short period of time, see if we got value in it. And if we did or we didn't, how do we tweak it to, to potentially get even more out of it or to potentially realize different sorts of value from it? So I think you're right, you know, busyness is a is a major challenge, but it's a it's a reset, you know, and in the book I talk about one area where this applies, which is this idea of managing energy, not time, which is one of the most profound changes I've made to the way that I structure my life. And one of the, the things I find really interesting when you go and have conversations with people about this is that more often than not, it is the B word that's the barrier. It's, oh, I'd love to go exercise, but I don't have the hour a day. Oh, I'd love to be mindful, but I can't find 45 minutes to meditate or whatever it might be. And again, not being flippant about that. These are genuine conversations I've had with very busy leaders. Um, and my what I find encouraging about the research is this overwhelming evidence of the, the power of what, what James Clear calls minimum viable habits and what we're seeing this evolution in of kind of the physiology and exercise world of micro breaks. And this idea that things don't have to be big to be significant. We can start building a habit of reading more by reading five pages a day. Five pages a day is still a lot more at the end of a week than it was than if we were waiting for that magical hour to sit down with a book uninterrupted and really have a go. If we're banking on that strategy, we've probably got zero pages done. If we're banking on the first strategy, at least we're getting through 35, right? So I think it's this interesting change and, and same with what we're seeing with exercise. It doesn't have to be an hour at the gym or even a half an hour workout. You know, there's science that says now 10 deep breaths, getting up and squatting, you know, on the spot in between your meetings can actually produce a positive change in your physiology. So it's helping us find these smaller ways to start, start playing with these habits. And when we realize benefit, we get a bit of momentum behind it, it becomes a lot easier to make these more significant parts of our day to day. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And again, you said it before, you know, in terms of reflecting on what's happening in your day to day and what you want to happen, it is the motivation to really change your mindset, but to really connect with what's important to you in terms of your priorities and then creating those minimal viable habits around that in terms of enabling yourself to be better, which I know that you managing your energy was a massive game changer for you. And I'd love to understand you know, why that was because we do focus on time too much and the lack of time, the language of time is so interesting in that we're always focused on what we don't have, mm. but we've, we're all equal in time regardless of affluence, race or gender, whatever. So what was like, why was it such a game changer for you in terms of managing your energy? Look, it's a it's a great question. As I talk about in the book, it came about because I got it wrong, you know, and, and I'm sure for many listening, Julie, to your podcast, they, they might be able to resonate with being quite a results-driven, A-type individual. Sure, not everyone, but I'm sure some of you. Um, and when you're that way wired, it's very easy to look at the hours of the day and almost see them as a challenge, all right? There are 24 yeah. of you. How much can I cram in? <laughs> and that idea that, you know, it, it is, there's output and there's a quantity obsession. And again, I think, We've been pretty well taught. Often we've been incentivized too for that to be yep. the way that we think about uh, structure. And, you know, when that came crashing down, I thought, wow, there's got to be a better way. And so I went looking mm-hmm. for a lot of the studies around high performance, which originally started in the world of sport that have now started to see more and more kind of overlap. I, I wish sometimes we did more cross-pollination without learning, bringing from different sectors and realizing that though their immediate environment might be different, there's so much that we can learn. And in the world of sport, there was this interesting work around um, and, and the book that it sort of inspired me around it was one called The Power of Full Engagement, which talked about the idea of managing time, not energy. And it was looking at the difference between world number one athletes and world number 10 and this whole idea that of, of productive downtime, the way they use these small moments between set points, uh, you know, at the end of a, a particular um, you know, quarter uh, period, whatever it was they were playing, to be able to rapidly recharge and restore themselves to go again. And so mm. for me, um, I started becoming interested in this topic and, and it began by doing a lot of reading and around just the commonality of, um, I guess, the application of this. So each and every one of us mm. has our own energy cycle, but we all ultimately have an energy cycle. There's a circadian rhythm our body yeah. has. Some of us are morning people. Others of us are absolutely late night owls. And if we do an energy audit and just track that about ourselves, we can then start to reflect and go, okay, now how do I make a really conscious choice about how I match energy to activity? Because each mm. of us has, there might be different times of the day, but we've all got high energy times of the day. And so how do we make sure that high energy period of the day is going to really important value-adding activity, whether that is creative work, whether it's business development, whether it's important meetings with people that you care about or you need to be collaborating with. It's not the time of the day that you go to answering emails. It's not the time of day necessarily yeah. that should go to kind of reconciling your expenses. That stuff needs to get done, but it shouldn't be allocated the high energy part of the day. And so for me, it was in this conscious choice of once I've done the energy audit, how do I think really consciously around matching what's on my to-do list, my priority list to the energy cycle that I've got in a day? And then the third thing was, okay, well, each of us has to do stuff that's draining. Like that's just unavoidable part of life. Not everything is uh, naturally energizing, but When I have those things that are, um, I guess, training, how do I be really intentional about the, what I'm bookending them with? So if I know Mm -hmm. I'm drained by uh, populating a spreadsheet, 
How after I've spent 90 minutes doing that and completing that task, do I put something in that's going to re-energize me? Maybe I'm calling yeah. someone that's really energetic. Maybe I'm going for a walk around the block for five minutes. So I mm. think the, the big thing for me, the, the power of that recent, it's how I manage my life now, was mm. what, are the, what are my fundamental energizers? So exercise is a great one. That goes in mm. every day as a building block, not as a nice to have if I've still got time at the end of everything else. Because I know I'm not in a position to give anything energy to anything else unless I've got that energy for myself first. And so that that was a really powerful reset. And then being more conscious around how I match the priorities of my week. You know, if we're thinking about goals and what we have to do to achieve whatever we're aiming at, making sure those activities that are really results-producing activities are getting those high-energy components of my day made an absolute game-changing difference. Yes, I love that. And I think we can all take something from that because you're so right. We do work better at different times of the day. And I mean, the research proves it. And I know I'm much better in the morning than I am in the middle of the day so for thinking work. Like to really focus, I can really apply myself. Whereas in the afternoon, it's a bit easier to get distracted and I want to do things like talking to Holly Rants or something <laughs> like that. Like, it's going to energize me, as you say. So it's really understanding how you work best. Yeah, it's a really yeah. powerful set of exercises. We step them, people through them in the book, but broadly that idea of do your own energy audit and then start matching in the way that you structure your week in your Google diary or whatever to match yeah. those activities up with what you want to be focusing on at any given high energy time. Just try that for a week and I think you'll be really blown away by the results mm-hmm. you achieve. 100%. Yes. So I want to circle back for a minute, just be um, back to your grandmother who's had such a huge influence on your life. And I just love the story that you share in the book about when you're in a supermarket and your grandmother stepped in between someone who was treating, you know, someone in the supermarket really badly. And she just said, you stop doing that and um, apologize. And you were just it sort of rooted to the floor thinking, oh my God, did, did she just do that? And I love the message that she shared with you that you have adopted now and, you know, are really living true to that. Can you share with our listeners a bit more about that story? Sure can. Well, so my grandma, Dorothy, is is 90 years old this year. Uh, she's been married to my grandpa 70 years. So they're an incredible duo, the two of them. And she and grandpa, for that matter, have been just unbelievably uh, strong, positive role models and the biggest source of encouragement in, in my life without question. And it's interesting, I always think our earliest memories offer us a lot, whatever they might may be, sometimes sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, but my earliest memory is one of, uh, as Julie just described, shopping with my grandma in the supermarket. And when this scene played out in front of us where there was this man that was quite aggressively having a go at the supermarket uh, checkout assistant uh, who'd evidently given him the wrong change. She was a young girl. He was absolutely letting her know it. You know, without blinking, my five-foot-tall grandma Dorothy had sort of inserted herself between the giant and this poor young girl and, as Julie described, sort of said, how dare you talk to that young lady like that? And, you know, he'd obviously never been told off in his life because he looked, it took him quite a few seconds to register what was going on and then he sort of grabbed his things and mumbled sorry and rushed out. And I said to her, you know, grandma, grandma proceeded like nothing had happened, might I add. That was so run-of-the-mill, paid for milk and bread, off we walked. Uh, and then she realised I wasn't holding her hand. I was still back in the line, sort of watching all this scene take place. And I said to her, grandma, you know, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. I didn't know what that meant in that moment, mm-hmm. but grandma had shown me what it meant in that moment. 
I think that was really powerful in and of itself. I wouldn't have understood that or necessarily been able to put that in context as a four or five-year-old, except the grandma Mm. had grounded it in it. You know, I'd seen a bully trying to bully someone and grandma had stepped in and said, that's not okay. Um, Mm. And it was such a formative lesson. And one, I think also the reason I started the book with it is because for me, that's a great example of what more of us need to step into. You know, there's there's a lot of talk around the word leader and who does it talk about and who does it not. And one of the things I've really intentionally tried to do with this book is say, actually, I think part of the problem is the stories we've told about leadership. There aren't, there isn't enough diversity in it. Um, It's overwhelmingly a select set of stories of predominantly men, often in a military context or an elite sporting environment or a Fortune 500 company. And you and I both know that leadership looks very different to that. And most importantly, leadership has to look different to that if we're going to solve the problems that are in front of us uh, right around the globe right now. It's going to take the collective mm-hmm. and concerted effort of everyone playing their part for us to be able to tackle issues mm-hmm. like climate change, for example. And one of the things mm-hmm. I love about Grandma in that moment is she had no formal title. She wasn't CEO of the shopping centre. She wasn't mm-hmm. in any kind of position that gave her authority to step in and say, hey, this isn't okay. She was about a metre shorter than the guy that she was stepping in to correct the behaviour of too, let me point out. But none of that stopped her from following through on the value that she held to be true and that she's lived every day of her life, which is that idea if you mm. walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And, you know, mm. absolutely it's had a, a huge impact on me. When I look back at everything I've chosen to get involved with, you know, charities I've volunteered with, uh, jobs I've chosen to take, all different choice points, ultimately it's all boiled down to things that I have encountered and not been prepared to walk past and at the moment Mm -hmm. when I've dug my heels in I've challenged myself to go okay if I'm not walking past it what am I doing here how am I trying to change this situation for the better and the thing I think I I try and encourage everyone to think about in that is this reframing of I think I don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious but I think it's part of the story of leadership that's run away from us a little bit at the moment and that's this idea in the age of saturated noisy big 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 uh, which is this hyper-connected, scaled world that we're in, it's really easy to think if if it's not X million big, people, dollars, whatever, then it's not worth doing or what you do doesn't matter. And I think that is one of the most problematic lies that's out there about leadership. And the reason I think what Grandma and so many of the examples in the book, you know, you will know a lot of the names of the people in the book, the Susan Keynes, the Malcolm Gladwells, Condoleezza Rice, you know, yeah, Sir Ken Robinson, But I think the people you end up talking about afterwards are people you haven't heard of yet. And I'm really excited about that because I I think the idea that we can lead in so many different ways, that all sorts of different people from all sorts of different demographics can be leaders and that those small moments matter as much as big movements, that's really what I hope people take from The Leading Edge. And now it's time for a quick break. To have a successful business or career, you need to lead it and lead it well which is why investing into your leadership is so important. If you are someone who wants to level up, play a bigger game and supercharge your results, then join Julie on her seven-week Role Model Effect program. It is a laser-focused program designed to give you clarity and confidence in your leadership to enable you to lead with influence as we move forward in our uncertain world. It will magnify your self-awareness and confidence, amplify your growth and intensify your influence as a leader. If you are curious to know more, visit juliehyde.com.au or contact her directly to find out more. I feel like you are 
sharing how people can A, be, be their leader of self in the first instance. And that's where they can start creating their change within their sphere of influence, as you say. And I find that incredibly powerful. So I don't believe you can be a leader, a true leader, until you're a leader of self in the first instance. And I love that you've started the book right there, but you're enabling people to take that believe in themselves, run with it, to then be able to, you know, as you move through your book in terms of, you know, the mastery of leadership in terms of leading others, it's understanding the impact that they make and can make. Definitely. And you've touched on so much of it there, but I think one part of the reason why to the the number of your question was that want to diversify the stories mm. and who was telling them. Yeah. Um, so this book's yeah. got 60 plus case studies. It's equal gender split, 20 plus countries, 42 different sectors, every generation, uh, you know, you name it. We've tried to put really diverse role models in, in front of people. And I think that's really critical because if we don't see ourselves in leadership, um, then it's really easy to self-select out or it's really yeah. easy to not have a sense of responsibility as well for the outcomes we're experiencing in society. So th- there's two folds to that. So I think absolutely that. The other thing was just this observation that the the tools that we were giving and teaching um, to leaders were just not mm. match fit for the world of yeah. 2021. Um, yes. You know, we're, we're working in a different environment. It's not a command and control world where you can bark orders down a hierarchy anymore. Um, we've got a really different relationship to people, whether that's in our organisations, whether that's in community with all the new technology and the, the different platforms and opportunities we have to create movements. And so we needed to give examples of people who are working in the here and now that could offer up a toolkit mm. for people who are like, okay, I'm up for that challenge. I want to be the change I want to see in the world. How do I go mm. about doing that? And for mm. me, you know, I wanted to crack that more open than I think it's available right now. I wanted to democratise access to those those tools and skills because I think more often than not, they're behind either quite a high paywall or they're behind a pretty big time wall. Like, yes, you can do it, but you've got to take six months off and go and study here or whatever it might be. Not many yeah. of us can do that with the demands on mm. our time. So if it's as simple mm. as sitting down and, and working your way through a book that's a consolidation of, you know, so many case studies of people that are out there being the change, um, I hope that that can prove to be a really handy uh, tool, a companion on that journey of leading for so many of you listening. Yeah, absolutely. I totally endorse that. And I think you you said that um, the leadership is not match fit. And I just, that is just such a perfect saying because the game has changed, right? In terms 100%. of leadership. And I love your chapter, you know, part 11, unlearn, learn, and relearn. And I think that chapter has a really powerful message in it. And you talk about there is a skills mismatch and disconnect in there. And if I bring that down to a local level in terms of, you know, for small business and, you know, in the corporate environment, say, and apply it to organisations here, I think this is what leaders really need to get so much better at. And you've just touched on that. Because how leaders listen to understand really needs to change. And in a context of a world that has changed so significantly, where people are exhausted of we've spoken about that and the hybrid world of work and the demand for flexibility and where millions of people are literally now resigning from their jobs. Mm. I think 7.6 million in the US resigned in April and May, according to the statistics. That, that, that's the biggest ever. Mm. But we've, we've now got such a priority disconnect 
So that need to align the business objectives with the people objectives um, and priorities is now huge and needs to be a real focus. Completely, yeah. And I think they're calling it the great resignation in terms of just the extraordinary number of people who are recalibrating uh, the way that they live their life or, or how they work or what they work on, um, you know, following the, the sort of reset that we've all been forced into with the pandemic over the last 18 months. And I think, you know, unlearning, relearning and learning, we, we opened that chapter with a great quote from that's attributed to Alvin Toffler where he says the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And I think that idea is so powerful in the sense of just how rapidly we know that the world is changing around us, even how um, significantly we've jumped forward in technology. Look at the pandemic, depending on what CEO or, you know, of which tech organisation or which report you're reading from one of the big consulting firms, we jumped somewhere between two and five years in the last uh, 12 months uh, in terms of just the, the progress on the technology revolution. Um, and how many jobs were automated and just how significantly we were changing up work culture. So you're absolutely right. That acceleration into, I mean, the future of work. I, I like the quote that says, you know, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. The future is absolutely already here. That We talk about the future of work that makes it sound like it's further away. It's not. It's here. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've we've had this extraordinary transition in um that I guess is supporting that uh, with the hybrid working environments and things like that, this arrival of flexibility to an extraordinary degree. And you're right, you know, this is a challenge individually as much as it is collectively. How do we collectively learn, unlearn and relearn? Because there's parts of the way that we're wired that absolutely don't suit what we're trying to achieve now. But, you know, you and I were talking, Julie, before we joined that everyone's got a different view on this. My view is unlearning is definitely the hardest of those three. Um, but that is maybe coming from a place of a, having an intentional discipline um, myself to always be learning something. So I reflect, we do it actually as an organisation where we say um, once a quarter, okay, what do we need to stop, which is our opportunity to unlearn. It's a habit that's no longer serving us relative to our objectives uh, and aspirations now. And they're often the ones we find we have to put more structure and accountability around because it's easier, particularly when, the, the pressure or urgency of deadlines and things like that comes back in to default to what we might have been doing previously or just to kind of go back and say yes and and lean back into old habits and old ways. Learning is that kind of intentional focus on what's new. And, uh, you know, one of the really interesting things, this, this is something I've learned to get better at. When I started my business six years ago now and I stepped out of a corporate environment that I was really familiar in, Probably the biggest challenge of that first year was learning to be a beginner again. It's really uncomfortable after we've been in a world where we know what we're doing for a long time to feel like we are, you know, like watch a two-year-old trying to learn how to walk, right? Where they take a couple of steps forward, a couple of steps forward, or anyone who's tried to snowboard recently, similar sort of thing, you know, a bit of a go, fall on your ass. You know, that's an uncomfortable environment, but it's one that we need to be really mindful of building our comfort with because, and and. I think the big reset for me too, I've worked a lot in youth unemployment policy over the last decade and very conscious on this skills mismatch in the context of young people coming out of school and university and just how disconnected often what they're graduating with is to the working environment. The bigger part of the equation I think we miss in that is that this conversation is arguably even more important for people aged 30 to 50 than it is for that high school demographic because we are longer out of school and that comfort with learning I find the longer away from a learning environment, the greater the discomfort with failure 
which makes experimentation and having a go really challenging. And so the intentionality with which people who are in the early to mid stages of their career, you know, given we're all working to well beyond 65 nowadays with with sort of the current workforce projections in Australia, that for me is where we've got to focus. This is a conversation I'm having more with leaders in their 40s and 50s and 60s than I am with leaders in their 20s or kids at high school right now. Um, And it's harder. It's harder to build that discipline in. It's harder to be really intentional. You've often got more competing demands on your plate. But that's where that idea of finding those small interventions. What am I, one thing I'm stopping this month, one thing I'm consciously working on learning on and I'm spending 15 minutes on it a day. How do you break this stuff down? So at the end of six months, three months, 12 months, whatever, you can look around and go, wow, look what I've compounded. I've removed these habits because they weren't serving me. I've added these new ones. They've created this greater new value or um, operating you know, uh, comfort for me than I had previously. But getting comfortable being uncomfortable and learning and unlearning being a huge part of that is absolutely business critical. Absolutely. I love what you said there. And it's really anchoring yourself to, I know you talk about this, to that aspiration, but you just mentioned the word value, which I think will resonate with a lot of people, particularly in those, you know, leadership positions. Because as you get older, and I am in that um, (laughs) job that you're talking about in terms of age, that demographic, it's something you do get a little bit set in your ways and, um, yeah, maybe a little bit stagnant in what we're doing and don't necessarily ensure that we're relevant to what's happening. So I think that's really interesting in terms of really understanding your value um, exchange has changed. And I know, so, you know, your yeah. listeners, Julie, will already be really open to this because you don't listen to podcasts like yours if you haven't got that idea of continuous improvement and learning mm-hmm. ingrained in you. But I think if you're thinking about how to build a structure for yourself, one of the things I encourage people to do is find a learning buddy or even a learning group. Like let's remake what book clubs once were. And that idea that you can actually delve into, you know, whether it's a challenge of saying, hey, we're going to do one thing that makes us uncomfortable every week or, hey, we're going to go and learn how to code at a workshop together or we're going to go and expose ourselves to a circular economy of business or we're going to go volunteer for an organisation that's doing something really different in the community. Whatever it might be, that that kind of doing it with a learning buddy makes it less scary. Um, also yeah. allows you to share and build on one another's learning. But I find the follow through on what we say we're going to do is much higher when we share it with someone that can hold us accountable and can go on the journey yeah. with us. So that might be something some people who are up for taking that on might want to consider. Yeah, great strategy. Talking about being unco- uh, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, Like I can only imagine <laughs> what it would have been like to interview the likes of Barack Obama, <laughs> Richard Branson, Condoleezza Rice, Billie Jean King, like massive massive names and extraordinary people has there been one thing that has had a huge impact like has there been a consistent message that's had a huge impact on you from having all of these amazing conversations with people I I think they're all quite different in terms of the fields they play in and their Mm. experience so in terms of the insights they're often quite different in terms of what they're talking about Mm. One of the things that is striking about all of them, though, whether we're talking, uh, yeah, Billie Jean King or um, someone like a Gladwell or Obama, there's such a clear sense of self and purpose that it's really to the point where it's almost quite disarming. 
Um, mm. And there's something about it that's almost quite X factor like. And I think there's two reasons. One is there's such clarity. There is so there's such a clear sense of message and purpose, um, and that's extraordinarily powerful. You know, listening to them articulate why their why matters, their vision that they've got, the amount of time yeah. they've clearly spent thinking about that is quite extraordinary. Mm. But I think the second mm. thing is they've done the work, and this is circling back to something you mentioned earlier, doing the work on yourself first. They've done mm. that work on who they are, and there's such a grounded sense of self in a way that feels humble but incredibly mm. resilient. This idea that they know who they are and why they're here and they're completely at peace with that. They know they're not going to be everyone's cup of tea. You know, everyone I'm interviewing yep. more often than not is a, is a thought leader or is someone that is at the leading edge of their field in that they're doing something yep. different, they're a, a new voice, they're a different voice, you name it. And that always comes with backlash, counter-opinion, consequences, you name it. But they're not people who live and lead from fear. They're people who live mm-hmm. and lead from vision and courage and they continue to choose that next brave thing and they step into and out after the vision that they've got for the world. And I think across the Bransons and, and everyone in you name it, that's probably the the single most unifying thing I would observe about being in conversation with all of them is that clarity of vision and purpose and this strong and secure sense of self. Amazing, awesome message. So interviewing Barack Obama, I have to ask you, because I know it's a question on many people's lips. What was it like? Were you like, were you super nervous? Or were you like <laughs> treating him like anyone else that you would interview? Uh, it was an incredible moment. I, I got a call when he, he was only doing one engagement in Australia. And I remember getting the call to say, oh, look, you're on the, the short list to do the interview. And I, I've been doing interviews long enough to know that, yeah, yeah, nice. That'll never come off. <laughs> and so I didn't really think much of it. And then got, a, got another phone call to... Uh, say, uh, you know, he selected you out of the shortlist. Uh, and that was quite the moment. And then they said, oh, could we get sort of a draft set of questions just in terms of your general thinking uh, by close of business? And so that was probably the stressful most I've sweated because mm-hmm. we didn't actually have to stick to the questions on the night. We had sort of 75 minutes to roam all over the place together on stage. But uh, I just was so worried they were going to send this list back with all this red pen through it and be like, no, why did we pick this one? This was a bad choice. So I think it was just getting through that kind of first hurdle that was almost, I guess, confirmation that they'd pick someone that could, could you know, maintain the right level of conversation and, and as well cover off the breadth of things that they wanted to cover off in front of that audience. Um, hmm. But the interview itself was actually uh, in- incredible. I wasn't actually nervous for that component of it. He's got an incredible, incredibly calming presence Um, Mm. and it's such a privilege and this is always the thing I think when I'm in interviews with people like that, what an incredible privilege to spend 75 minutes with one of the leaders of this generation. Um, Irrespective of politics, you can't argue that someone who's held the position he's done has not got a lot of views and interesting opinions, Mm. let alone the way he's navigated his own leadership journey and everything like that. So I always see it as a privilege and I think, um, you know, c- comparison is what robs joy. Like when you sit there and go, oh, my gosh, or you're worried about, you know, am I going to ask good enough questions or this and that and the other? I, I learned long ago that if you're not thinking about your audience, uh, then you're thinking about the wrong thing. And if you're thinking about your audience, you don't get nervous um, because nerves, as one of my early improv coaches taught me, nerves are selfish. It's a really confronting yeah. idea when at the time you're experiencing uh, nerves in what you're doing, but it's been a really powerful reframer in the last five years of my career where 
it's right. You know, mm. if I'm thinking about who I'm here for, which is the audience, which is to try and honor um, the content, the expertise, the life story of the person that I'm interviewing, it's very rare in those uh, moments I get nervous. Yeah, amazing. And that's such a good message too in terms of if you get nervous, you're more worried about what about you rather than the audience. Try and take your focus outward. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got past that stage in the book, so I've read that one. I love it. I love it. Nice. So, oh, my God, I'm really mindful of time. There's so many things I want to ask you. <laughs> like, I'm going to say I'm really old asking this question, but um, you've achieved so much in your short years. Like, you're only in your early 30s and you've achieved so much. So what will Holly in 10 years' time be reflecting back on and be really happy about. It's funny you ask that because I uh, I got an email this week from one of my earliest mentors who sort of started mentoring me when I, I started my first business and he had just finished reading the book. He, you, If you read the book, you'll read about him uh, with the dice story. Uh, for those who are wondering, this is the story of John. And John emailed me and he said, you know, happy, happy 11th anniversary for our mentoring relationship. Oh. And so we were talking about, you know, back and forth about, you know, all those years ago and, uh, you know, everything we were kind of talking about and thinking about in the world then. And it's fascinating in that not none of what has come to pass in the last decade could I have really anticipated. Um, I've always been a goal setter. Uh, the last decade has defied even my wildest goal setting expectations, which I'm forever grateful for. And I think it's also reframed my goal setting in that uh, probably early in my 20s and I sort of laugh when I think about the spreadsheets of goals that people like John probably got from me 11 years ago, the poor guy. Um, but I think one of the things I've learned is that, or the, the, and I talk about this in the book, the, the kind of philosophy I have in life now is that I've got a strong sense of direction and a loose hold of the reins. I think I moved away from prescriptive goal setting to more think about, you know, buckets or horizons or things that I'm working towards because I think it was probably like if, if I think about the, the opportunities, whether it's, you know, interviewing Obama, whether it's becoming a Fulbright scholar and getting to go off to Harvard and do my study recently, you know, that for me, um, I don't even think I was ambitious enough to put that sort of stuff down on, on the goals list. I, I don't know that I would have been able to chart a path to how that was going to happen. Um, and so I think... Mm. I've, I've taken a more an approach where I always know from a purpose standpoint what I'm trying to achieve, but I'm a little bit more fluid because I just believe I've learned that opportunities come where and when you're least expecting them. And it's about being able to put the irons in the fire, but you're never quite sure which iron's going to get pulled out or when it's going to get pulled out. So I think I've taken a little bit of a twist, which is not to avoid answering your question. It's more just to say that I truly don't think I know, bar that I hope that I've made a really significant contribution to um, scaling the, the tools and skills that can support leaders who are up for this journey of taking on being the change that they want to see in the world. There's a real heart in the work that I do for leadership development and the book is part one of that, but I want to make a really significant contribution to that. Mm. Um, there's a lot of work in the charity space, um, women's empowerment, LGBTI inclusion, that I've got really big ideas for what I want to be able to make happen in the next decade. So I'd hope in some way, shape or form, made some significant dent in moving the conversation and moving the markers of progress uh, in the right uh, right way there. Um, and I think certainly I, I absolutely love I'm Never More in Flow than when I am uh, on stage 
or in conversation with really bright minds. And so I would hope that the opportunity to interview and connect uh, with incredible leaders and thought leaders, but more importantly than that, to, to try and find ways of bringing their ideas and stories down mm. um, and simplifying kind of the complexity of the world around us so that all of us can find meaning and inspiration and advice in that. Mm. Um, I'd hope I'd made an, a contribution to that. So they're my three buckets that I'm working towards, but I couldn't tell you exactly what that's going to look like. Amazing. I have no doubt that you will be moving that needle, as you said, or making that change. So is there a final message that you would like to leave us in terms of for us to start leading on the edge? Oof. I, I think the thing that I will end with is that idea that for anyone listening, I challenge you to start where you are right now with exactly what you have. Um, that notion of, you know, I always find whether it's the busy word or whether it's I'm not ready, those two, busy, uh, you know, I'm not ready or fear. And I think you can start by telling whichever one of those is the voice in your head to shut up for a minute and then thinking about what can I do right here, right now, today to take a step towards being the change I want to see in the world. It could be as simple as spending some time researching a cause online, could be as simple as reaching out to a colleague and having a conversation about an idea that you haven't given life to yet. Um, could be signing up to volunteer for someone. It could be choosing to start that side hustle and register that business name. Whatever it is, just think about one small step because momentum is our greatest friend when it comes to driving change. So think about how you can start building momentum today. Oh, my goodness. I love that. What an awesome final message. Holly, thank you so much. Your achievements are an absolute credit to you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thanks for being a huge inspiration for me and for so many. And I can't wait to get through the entire book. It's going to be dogma. <laughs> it's going to be drawn on. So Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. As someone who highlights and, and doggy his books uh, left, right and centre, I'm humbled to think that's happening to mine. So thank you, Julian. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you have gained some great ideas and feel inspired to get out there and make what you do count for your leadership, your business and your life. Please do leave a review for this podcast and please share it with your network. Send any feedback or suggestions for future guests by emailing me julie at juliehide.com.au. For now, let's get out there and make it count.